Aid Talks is an educational series discussing the most pressing issues on aid and development cooperation today and the critical issues surrounding it. Co-hosted by AidWatch Australia and the Reality of Aid Asia-Pacific, Aid Talks aims to inform the public on how official development assistance, or ODA, commonly known as aid, provided by donor countries to developing nations and fragile states, is being utilised as aid investment, redirected to support private sector players and narrow security priorities over reducing inequality and poverty. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited for this topic today because it is such an important issue. Um, so as mentioned, we have a very interesting topic today where we will be talking about reparations and resilience for the fifth aid talks. Our speakers will discuss pertinent matters and crucial issues about decolonization of climate finance. Seeing our reality right now where there's a lack of commitment to mobilize sufficient financing for countries in the global south, especially to adapt to the climate crisis impacts and how that contributes to exacerbation of inequalities and further degradation of the environment. We're also seeing how there's a lack of control of frontline communities over the use of this much needed finance, which means that they it gets rid of this ownership over their development priority, priorities and puts their lives further at risk. It's also important to note how majority of climate finance that's being provided today are in the form of loans. And so that means we have countries in the global South going into debt because of the impacts of the climate crisis that the global North caused. And so when we're demanding for climate finance for um, climate reparations, really, it has to be in the form of grants and not loans. And again, ensuring that when you provide aid and these grants, that there are no neoliberal policies that come along with it, which happens quite often, especially in the Philippines. This webinar will shed light about the need for development actors to increase their climate finance commitments. And that should be additional to their official development assistance disbursements, as well as the urgency really to decolonize this resource in order to effectively address the climate emergency that threatens the lifeline of individuals, communities, and the planet. And in this webinar, hopefully you will have the insights and we'll learn about crucial discussions about adaptation, mitigation, loss and damage, which will also be tackled to understand what kind of climate action the world really needs and why it's urgent to take appropriate measures as early as now. And to open us up, our first speaker um, will be giving us an overview of climate finance and decolonization of aid. They are Shed Jahangir Hassan Masoom, who has been working as a human rights and development activist for the last 18 years to realize social, economic, and climate justice. Since 2008, he has been serving as the executive director of Coastal Development Partnership, a national research and advocacy-focused not-for-profit organization in Bangladesh. He is also the chairperson of Reality of Aid Asia-Pacific. Masoom acts as people's advocate both in national and international arena, he has conducted many researches on climate risks, development effectiveness, public-private partnership, low-carbon development, just energy transition, renewable energy, and impact of global challenges such as the climate crisis, but also the financial crisis and the food crisis. And he is also active in the Asia-Pacific Regional Civil Society Engagement Mechanism, Asia-Pacific Research Network, Reality of Aid Network, High-Level Political Forum and SDGs, Climate Action Network South Asia, and the OECD DAC. CSO reference group. So we have a very, very um, seasoned speaker coming up for us. Um, with that, I'd like to call you on, Masoom. Thank you, Missy, uh, for nice introduction. And I hope that uh, 
people will bear in these complicated issues. And I'm very happy to uh, give an overview. So first, let me start. Like we all know that climate change can hamper development results. And the development choices uh, that we will take today or we are taking today can also change Earth's climate. So both are, it might seem that both are very much interrelated. So um, this really gives a challenge for the international negotiations to define climate finance and its relationship to aid, especially to scale up international climate finance. If we look for the, all the global policy framework, Paris Climate Agreement, Sendai Framework, Artisau Action Agenda, and 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development, we will see that all these frameworks provided a clear role and responsibility for mobilizing climate finance. And this role is basically uh, divided into two groups, one for the developed countries, one for the developing countries. So the role for the developed countries are to mobilize and increase international climate finance. And for the developing countries, the role is to strengthen or increase their domestic climate finance. So now, if we think uh, about the decolonization, uh, many of us might not know that we are still living kind of over, uh, under colonization uh, because this is currently the fourth international decade for the eradication of colonialism from 2021 to 2030. So, and the first decade started in 1990. So this is a UN process and UN has officially recognized uh, the need for eradication of colonialism. Also, the UN uh, really tried to boost that the wave of decolonization was born with the UN. And they said that since the creation of the United Nations, uh, 80 former colonies have gained their independence. But uh, let me say this decolonization cannot be achieved automatically by independence. Many of might think that, okay, we are independent, we are no, not under any influence of our former colonial uh, dictator. But what we feel that decolonization should be considered as a process to unmask and dismantle all form of colonialist power, imperialist power and values. So I will uh, discuss uh, later more. Now come to the point climate finance and ODA or aid. There is a clear distinction between ODA and climate finance if we consider the purpose. For the purpose of ODA is to reduce poverty. And the purpose of climate finance in a simple term to reduce climate risk and vulnerabilities. So there shows a clear differentiation in core objectives. And when we call about the ODA or aid, it is basically the concessional finance or technical assistance from the developed countries to the developing countries. So now, the, although there is a no definition of what is climate-related ODA or climate aid, which um, I personally believe that we should consider climate-related ODA or climate aid, which are new and additional to existing ODA, for supporting the mitigation and adaptation actions needed to address climate change in 
developing countries. However, we have to keep in mind there is still no consensus on the methods of recruiting new and additional climate fine. There is a definition given by the UNFCCC uh, Standing Committee on Finance. Uh, basically, they consider climate finance is the finance that aims at climate mitigation and climate adaptation. So this definition still needs to address the loss and damage issue as well. Usually in the world, the climate finance delivers basically a couple of mechanisms. One is the non-market approaches. That is basically to a direct concessional flows or transfer of funds from recipient governments. And there is another one is private sector initiatives using existing ODA mechanisms or blended finance. And there is a third one is the use of market-based instruments such as international or domestic uh, emission trading system. There is also a mechanism under the UNFCCC to mobilize climate finance such as Green Climate Fund and Global Environmental Facility. Now I will come current aid structure, how basically it contains the legacy of colonialism. There is no written rule, but we all, if we see clearly the disbursement pattern of the aid, we will see a former colony-centric approach. The, uh, like for example, in Bangladesh, we get most of the support from also the UK. Uh, and all, for example, the Indonesia gets from Netherlands as a private country, the African country from the France, so this has created a problem. What kind of problem? When you put the funds or aid for the former colonies, you have created a aid darlings and aid orphans because you have a preference for some countries, not their actual need, but basically what the donors feel their interest. So for example, one study has found that Egypt, Turkey, and Mexico are eight targets among the other countries. On the other hand, Bangladesh, Tanzania, Ethiopia, and Democratic Republic of Congo are eight orphans. So if these former colony-centric approaches are not in the practice, then the current uh, age have to reallocate it huh, in a different way. And if you have to now reallocate it, you have to reallocate 50% of the current aid distributions from the aid darlings to aid orphans. And also I would say that in the climate finance context, donors basically aims at financing the transition to a carbon neutral economy. That will be the resident to climate change. And this economy is basically for their geostrategic and commercial uh, fulfillment. If we see that, then you will see that currently 80% of the climate finance portfolio is dedicated to mitigation. Only 20% is goes to adaptation. And since 2011, the adaptation portfolio of this 20% is remains more or less same, only a simple variation in the year. And OECD DAC members basically they define new and additional climate functions that way they say fit with their analysis. Many of the studies, for example, of some studies have found that many donors either overvalue the net amount of money transferred to recipient countries 
or overestimate the climate finance elite. This is also a colonialist approach or imperialist attitude. Donors basically tend to mobilize their climate finance outside the UNFCC process so that they can serve their own interests and they can ensure their visibility. And donors also deliberately ignore environmental governance principles. So the polluter principles or principles of equity, uh, they cannot be really enacted uh, strongly. If it goes to the UNFCCC process, then you have to follow these principles. That's why they also really like to see the fund disbursement. So now, why decolonization of climate finance? How we can do that? One thing, climate finance should be treated differently from the normal ODA. Climate finance should be considered as an investment for present and future humanity. So it's not a charity, it's an investment for humanity. And climate finance should mean new and additional ODA. And country system and country plans should be the central driver of climate finance if we want to delocalize colonization. Because currently the international political economy drives decision about climate finance. And also the least developed countries, their priority should be highlighted because their priority is adaptation. And um, as a basic principle of climate justice, the developing countries should not pay developed countries in terms of principal interest on loans as climate finance. And thank you very much. Thank you very much, Masoom, for that very, very important and lovely explanation and very clear and concise um, demands. So now we will be going on to the next part of our um, webinar, which will be a panel discussion. Now we will be, in, uh, let me introduce our wonderful panelists. Um, we have Mariam Al-Aja on adaptation. Mariam is the general manager of the Arab Group for Protection of Nature. She holds a master's degree in development econom economics from SOAS, University of London, and a BA in international development from Leeds University. She works and published papers in the areas of rural development, food security, agriculture, land, and conflict response. We also have um, Josiah Osborne, um, who will be talking to us about mitigation. Uh, Josiah is the deputy director of the Pacific Islands Association of Non-Governmental Organizations, uh, which is a regional network of umbrella NGOs from 24 Pacific Island countries and territories who are rethinking development and reshaping the Pacific that we want by 2030. And on loss and damage, we have Wali Haider, who is the Joint Director of Roots for Equity and has been serving the organization for more than 20 years now. Roots for Equity works with marginalized communities, especially the small and landless farmers, including religious minorities and women. And in this context, strongly advocates food sovereignty. In his early years at the organization, Haider was also involved in youth environmental education programs as a community educator and campaigner. And he also took part in the formation of an independent mass-based platform for small and landless farmers, namely the Pakistan Kisan Mazdoor Tariq. He also plans plays an active role in advancing the struggle for land rights and seed sovereignty. Currently, is also the focal point for farmers' constituency for APRCM. So without further ado, our first question is, uh, how does the current aid structure further perpetuate colonialism and neoliberalism, and which, for, which further contributes to environmental degradation? Okay. So how does the current aid structure further perpetuate colonialism and neoliberalism? So um, 
The current aid structure uh, endorses the same capitalist system that encourages profit accumulation by some at the cost of others, but using cleaner and more efficient technologies. And as depicted by a researcher called Raiden Roy, he said, yesterday's fossil fuel tycoons are today's low carbon billionaires. So um, the aid structure currently advocates for the use of quote unquote green products and technologies that support what they call green economy. Um, but these technologies are manufactured by industrialized countries and they support neoliberal approaches of production and consumption. So um, the second aspect to look at is the, the, how the current aid system advocates for downsizing the agricultural sector in the global south, uh, which is one of the most harmed sectors by climate change, as opposed to downsizing or restricting other sectors that are much more harmful, uh, such as the, the arms industry or the transport industry. And the problem with that is that if, if governments in less developed countries continue to be pressured to mitigate carbon emissions through restricting their farming sector, um, we will have a situation with a, a drop in agricultural production in the south and further deterioration of food insecurity, which has already reached very uh, bad and, and unprecedented levels. Uh, this will further the concentration and monopoly of international agribusiness in food production. And, and, and the global, globalized food system currently has proven to have the most harmful impact on the environment, unlike the traditional you know, diversified farming uh, practiced by our small farmers in the South. Uh, what we've witnessed um, in Jordan and other governments in our region is that governments are, uh, the, the aid structure at, at the moment is treating our governments as subcontractors. So it's cementing the lack of sovereignty and agency of our governments, uh, and they're acting, and they're and 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 our governments at the moment uh, do not have screening policies for projects or environmental projects. So they are um, uh, the priorities of the West or in the, the industrialized uh, uh, region is being imposed on our region. And and here I can give an example. Um, which is uh, which is the many projects that are being you know offered to Jordan uh, to cultivate trees, uh, but most of these uh, projects are are uh, you know are prioritizing trees that are non-productive, and only for the aim of carbon you know um, uh, uh, sequestration or you know absorption of of, of CO two. Uh, but when we demanded as civil society that we wanted to plant trees that are both environmentally but also have economic and nutritional value so we can enhance the food sovereignty of Jordan, we were denied that. So, and the, the, the re, this is really uh, dangerous because um, it really links climate finance to uh, furthering the subjugation of this uh, region and, you know, uh, neoliberal policies, particularly in the agricultural sector. Um, Particularly because you know the Arab region is one of the most dependent uh, on food imports globally. So our contribution uh, to global emissions is really trivial. So asking the, the Arab region to cut down on agriculture is something really you know serves the uh, agendas of uh, countries that are you know industrialized and have been using us as markets. So the aid structure at the moment is is forcing poorer countries 
to, 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 to develop without using fossil fuels. And this is really unjust because the, the, this part of the world has a right to development. And if, if um, uh, any support should be given to this part of the world, it should be by adaptation, by adapting our economic sectors to the harms of climate change and to try to recover the loss and damage we have witnessed in the, in the past uh, decades. And um, disregarding the imbalance and responsibility between the global north and the global south in industrialization, capital accumulation and consumption uh, will further uh, uh, environmental degradation. And we have to um, also remember that um, there is that the climate change intersects with other you know, vulnerabilities and other social and political um, injustices. So the, 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 the aid industry at the moment um, is not recognizing that there are certain uh, structural causes that are leaving communities susceptible to the impact of climate change, such as um, uh, war, occupation, settler colonialism, um, uh, class, racism, all of these structural causes are leaving us more vulnerable. But the aid industry is not assisting us in, you know, um, enhancing our, our, our um, adaptation capacities. And finally, I'd like to say that um, the aid industry at the moment is marginalizing genuine movements and NGOs in our part of the world um, and giving more space for co-opted civil society organizations. And, and, and just to give a Quick example is um, one of the you know COP conferences that took place in Qatar. I remember a few years back, uh, the Arab civil society representatives that were supported by the EU were asked to hold the slogan or to you know champion the slogan of Arabs take the lead in in carbon uh, emission reduction. And as you know, most of the Arab countries are are, are non-industrialized countries. They're non-productive uh, countries. And um, seeing uh, Arab civil society representatives holding the banner of, you know, us taking the lead rather than the North and the industrialized countries taking the lead was very sad to see. So um, this is pretty much in a nutshell. Okay. Thank you so much for that, Mariam. And it's the same here in the Philippines where uh, they plant trees, um, but the trees that they're planting are the ones that they can profit off of. So they're not endemic trees, they're trees that uh, they use for export. Um, and you talked a lot about food security and agriculture. For our next question, um, I'd like to ask you guys, what does the decolonization of climate finance mean in each of your uh, work? So uh, whether mitigation, adaptation, or loss and damage efforts. And how do you guys think we can imagine, reimagine um, the climate finance that genuinely addresses the uh, climate emergency? Mariam, would you like to start again? Okay, um, so primarily what is needed is for the industrialized countries to reduce consumption and not, you know, the poor populations of the world. And also to um, live up to their responsibility in not only mitigation, but also financing um, the recovery of the loss and damage that has happened to the different, you know, economic sectors in the, in the South, but also to, for, for adaptation. And um, so we need less focus on, you know, uh, climate uh, temperature change, but more on preventing the impact 
on the environment, people, and the wider ecology. And in order to do that, we need to enhance country ownership and putting the communities, the, the impacted communities in the center of decision-making. And, and this, of course, entails adaptation of the agricultural sector, as particularly support of smallholder farmers. So basically by, um, for instance, addressing um, crop loss by cultivating uh, climate resilience crops, supporting water management, diversifying uh, livelihoods, uh, giving, giving them access to information, but also protecting native seeds and seed banks that are climate resistant. And finally, to be able to, um, uh, it's really, really essential to address the uh, systemic inequalities and the structural causes that are leaving communities vulnerable. And we can all, only do that by protecting the rights of peoples. For instance, under occupation and settler colonialism where, where the, the water rights are, are already violated, uh, seed banks are being destroyed, uh, people are under sanctions. So in order to enhance people's you know, resilience in times in, in the face of climate change, we need to uh, look at these structural causes of vulnerability. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mariam, for constantly reminding us that it is a structural issue and a structural problem. The climate crisis is a symptom of that profit-oriented imperialist system that we have today. Um, and uh, Josiah, would you like to go next for this one? Or maybe Wally? Oh, there, jo Thank Josiah, you. go ahead. Yeah. Um, of the, the question, eh? um, any climate finance uh, initiatives uh, flows directly to the affected communities and recognizes uh, traditional knowledge. For us um, in the in Mala, at uh, the Pacific Island Association of NGO, we believe more in the localization agenda, where local actors determine um, the determine the local agenda. Um, and as already highlighted earlier, there is ownership. So um, there is a need for ownership in order to ensure decolonization of climate uh, finance, and also um, a need to guarantee access to finance and the creation of more equitable uh, finance arrangements, beginning with the review of regional and international uh, financial architectures with inputs from uh, civil society organizations and uh, other st uh, stakeholders. Yeah? In terms of existing uh, efforts, of the donor community to decolonize um, uh, this finance. Um, at the regional level here in the Pacific, um, we have the Pacific Resilience Facility, which is being uh, set up to provide uh, financing options that put Pacific governments and institutions in control of climate finance for the Pacific. Eh? Um, this is a financing mechanism that will provide a self-sustaining source of funding for small-scale projects to strengthen community resilience to the risks and impacts of climate change and disasters in vulnerable communities. This is um, this um, finance uh, facility or the Pacific Resilience uh, Facility um, is actually um, um, it's uh, unique because it is owned, led, and designed by the Pacific, but this is at the regional level by, uh, and is also housed by a intergovernmental, uh, regional intergovernmental institution. But I would like to also highlight that 
at the CSO level in Piango, we also have the facility aiding local engagement, which actually uh, bridge or is a nexus between climate and uh, humanitarian uh, action. While uh, at the same time, um, there is also um, a Kiowa climate emergency declaration where there is a finance mechanism that, that is being um, actually proposed specifically on, uh, for, for climate action. Thank you. Thank you so much, Josiah, for really emphasizing that point on climate debt, um, just like what Wally was, ex was is explaining earlier because of the impacts that we're already experiencing. So Wally, would you like to answer this question and also tell us a little bit about what your country has been going through? So the climate imperialism that has led to one extreme climate event in another destroying millions of acres of cultivatable land. Climate imperialism is monopoly capital's addiction to fossil fuel-based hyper-industrial production. I'm just laying down the structural causes uh, which need to be dismantled to decolonize. No? Uh, addiction to fossil fuel-based hyper-industrial production, it is disturious, toxic agro-industrial production-based false solution in the name of climate smart technologies or climate finance. It ensure that nation facing hunger become dependent on industrial food and aid along with technologies, further profit to mega for their mega corporation. Only in these couple of months, there have been tremendous extreme climate events in India, Bangladesh, Philippines, Japan, Sudan, Italy, and uh, apart from Europe and US. Recently, uh, this uh, the flood in Pakistan. Uh, the damage and loss need assessment. It's a World Bank report says that right, it might not be uh, entirely true. The assessment estimates total damage of exceed 14.9 USD billion. 14.9 billion USD. The total total economic loss to reach about. 15.2 billion USD estimated need to rehabilitation and reconstruction in the resilient way are at least 16.3 billions. So these these are no uh, uh, apart from from that only 91 lakhs 8473 livestock have been died. No. So the only source for the rural community, the those who don't have land or those who have small land, only livelihood source is livestock. That's been their house is no more there, their, their livestock is no more there, and their livelihood, the agriculture practice where they do their agriculture on the land, it is still on the water. So many of the communities cannot even sow their next crop for wheat, which is essential for our food. So this is, you know, it's a very traumatic situation. People are still on the road and there, is, there are no significant uh, uh, aid. Even the UN Secretary General itself visited Pakistan during those days, but there is no significant assistance and no real realization 
of the structural causes causes uh, of of this crisis so as as uh, mariam mentioned how to de decolonize straightforward we need to decolonize delink this current development model which is capitalist model and we need to bring a genuinely democratic transparent production system political system where we can make sure climate justice economic justice and how this is possible make them accountable to the people and the demand is accountability to the people hence we use a term called development justice where people has the power to maneuver the world to run the world to decide for themselves not few corporations not the few imperialistic elitist countries uh, those who uh, run the world no how this can be possible this is only possible when the developed imperialist capitalist country will recognize and by our uh, assertion they realize that they have a historical responsibility for the loss and damages which been happening everywhere in the third world especially in pakistan billions of dollar have been lost uh, in in many shapes for the recent flood and no one is uh, uh, committing that so that is very important and then we need now to use the community's local wisdom how this situation can be uh, deal with unless or until we use the local wisdom and give power to our people and community uh, there will be no chance of decolonization uh, for ourselves and also i would also like to agree with uh, mariam that you know that seed saving agroecological based agriculture and sustainable agriculture which is very important and country like us genuine agrarian reform is the most important demand you do whatever you do across the world but if you don't the people majority of the rural people who does not have land will not have a livelihood a decent livelihood so genuine agrarian reform is one of the important solution for for the for the communities who are facing uh, the miseries thank you very much thank you so much wali um without further ado i will dive right into our first question from our audience uh Basilia Madeira reads that in Timor-Leste, we have also faced the tragic problem of climate. We have been hugely facing the ecological and environmental damage. Although there have been numerous projects aided mainly from the neoliberal agencies, multinational companies investment, as well as the UN program through SDG program, coupled with the government's institutions program. But it seems that nothing has improved and changed in terms of food security. The same in the Philippines, I'd like to just say that. Um, and, also in terms of climate crisis and more beyond. Are there any other aids or alternative ways that we as the community, along with the agricultural union can tackle? Who would like to answer that from our lovely speakers? Answer Maybe, the question. it's a difficult, it's a, it's a tough question. <laughs> it is a difficult question. It's a difficult question, but what I think is we have, um, our countries have the right for this, finance. We have the right to get this finance from the UN, from these governments, from these industrialized nations. What we need to demand for 
are monitoring and accountability mechanisms and participatory processes where we are we can set our priorities and and you know uh, hold governments international organizations even civil society organizations into account and i think um, this is one route that we 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 should be taking thank you mariam it is really important the call for that accountability and that transparency um, i'll give an example of what we do in the philippines where when there are typhoons and storms here um, it's civil society that comes together uh, led by grassroots movements and of course some of it won't be great but the ones that actually work with the uh, community organizers that i think is uh, the stuff that we can really support that's what we do in in my organization youth advocates for climate action philippines we connect with the community organizers that have always been there um fighting for their democratic rights and their social justice rights and those are the communities that we connect with and that's um we ask them how and we partner up with them and providing aid while while we call for donations from the filipinos from the international community of course it's not going to be as big and as enough right because as what mariam was mentioning we have a right to this, not just aid, but these reparations, because they have a debt to us, as Josiah was mentioning earlier. The Global North has a climate debt to us, and they have to pay for that. So we need to demand, and the existing aid that we're already seeing, we have to make sure that when we call for accountability, it's not just about the finance, but also making sure that no neoliberal policies come along with it. Um, we can move to the next question. Conflict and climate change are two interlinking issues that affect and influence each other. What are the demands to effectively channel finance and aid towards contexts that are both inflicted by climate and conflict-related issues? Oh, well, yes, please join in. Uh, you know, we need to look into the root causes, no? and again, the structural causes, causes of the conflicts and war. Many of, majority of the conflict and war across the globe are politically motivated. For instance, the recent ongoing war, proxy, US proxy war, led by US, Ukraine and Russia. No? It's, a, it's a prime example, how war can be created. Just create a, uh, we have example of uh, uh, Afghan war, when NATO uh, enter in, in the Afghanistan. Uh, War entails destruction, or conflict entails destruction, resulting in widespread toxic substance, dead wildlife, and an atmosphere choked with fumes. Militaries consume enormous, enormous amount of fossil fuel. Uh, bombing and other methods of modern warfare directly harm wildlife and biodiversity. It's undermine local communities' movement and life. Uh, you take example of Kashmir, you get example of uh, Palestine, you get example of many other conflict regions. I know in India, uh, uh, Manipur region, and in, of course, the country you are from, Philippines. These, these conflicts creating a lot of issues, including climate uh, crisis, but it's a human crisis itself. And which is politically motivated. We need an international framework which make them accountable, those the forces, the, the imperialist forces, those who are responsible for creating this conflict. Conflicts 
majority of these conflicts and war is not natural is created uh, many conflicts in pakistan uh, religious conflict is been designed by imperialist forces to just divide and rule so unless or until we we talk about and we we theorize the very political aspect of conflict and war we are not going to deal with this these issues and of course i fully agree with mariam that local solutions need to be adopted and people give to be uh, uh, people have to be more powerful so that a national true national liberation and uh, sovereignty can be achieved including food sovereignty thank you thank you so much wali for that strong voice um zain malvi i think you want to ask a question um feel free to unmute yourself yeah hi thank you can i be heard all right thank, uh, thanks folks i wanted to ask a question from uh, uh, mariam um who i think gave a really nice context to the you know the background of the you know the colonial and neoliberal frameworks within which we operate so I had, I had a more sort of you know granular and specific question on the upcoming cop um and you know what can be done to sort of push this kind of uh, analysis through into actual you know on ground uh, specific kind of uh, uh you know benefits that we can derive from the negotiations or some kind of mechanisms we can push for um so i have two questions one is um, or two thoughts one is uh, you know we've already seen this uh, attempt to decolonize climate finance or more generally finance um, in the shape of the Warsaw mechanisms and the Santiago network. And they've all, you know, they've all been complaining about the issue, which is one that you do not have a separate line of finance for loss and damages, which needs to be there. Everything is, you know, taken over by this discussion on resilience and adaptation and mitigation. And the second is this, this concern that even if you were to go that, that route, the mechanisms of dispersal and the means by which they get to nations and they get to countries that need it, um, come with all those things that you described, all those tied up policy framework implications and all those, uh, you know, tied up sort of uh, interventions through technical assistance and stuff. Um, and I was wondering what what would uh, what would Mariam suggest uh, that a, a nation such as, for instance, Pakistan that just underwent the floods, like Wali really nicely described, what what would such a uh, what should such a nation be doing in negotiations to ensure that there is in fact a line of finance, a mechanism of dispersal, and a method. Uh, for continuing to accrue that kind of uh, uh, benefit at that level um, in the upcoming years when they actually do negotiate and what mechanisms should they be pushing for? Because it's it's fine to talk about monitoring, it's fine to talk about participation, it's fine to talk about those accountability mechanisms, but we're doing them in our head and in our, you know, in our own private spaces, unless there's some specific architecture in the climate finance internationally that we can propose changing. So there's some specific architectural change that uh, Mariam would propose. Um, thank you so much, Zain, for the question. Uh, you are right. Um, uh, so far, um, the, the right to be compensated uh, or financed for loss and damage has you know, not been accepted by uh, northern countries. And, and if I may elaborate a little bit, loss and damage is not only economic or physical. Um, when we come to analyze loss and damage, there's also the, the non-physical or the non-economic damage the damage to you know um, social relations and heritage and culture that that you know um, is parallel to climate change. So um, it is really essential to work towards that. Now I haven't been really personally to the previous uh, COP in Paris, 
But when I was in, 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 in Qatar, I realized that the civil society space in, in the climate change conference is very, very restricted. The space to speak, to, to try to influence, and I and it is you know much less than other platforms I've been in, whether in you know the the UNEP or the Committee on World Food Security in Rome. I think the one on COP is really really restricting for civil society. So I think one way is to try to give and push and demand as global civil society that we need more space in these conferences. And until we get to that point, we have. Uh, we have to try to influence our own governments and empower our own governments to do uh, more south-south uh, cooperation in the negotiations and to represent our priorities more. So this is one of the tactics we managed to do on one of the platforms when we saw that civil society is not being given a lot of space is to try to influence and mobilize and empower uh, the governments who do have a voice and try to, you know, build more uh, integration and more like negotiation force among countries that are facing the same problems. Um, if the admin permits, could I follow up? Uh, Marian, thank you for that. Uh, just two thoughts on this one. We found that this actually works. It has a counter. Uh, it sort of works the other way around, which is that uh, typically the governments are hands in glove and so are the contractors and you know, the lines of finance then become extremely uh, tied into, you know, interests that serve a very particular elite. Um, and especially in countries that have been compromised this way through years uh, of addiction to IMF and other uh, loan sources, ADB, World Bank, and so on, this is a recurring problem. And so the creation of uh, fiscal space through the government uh, mechanisms is oftentimes counter. Uh, it's, it's, it works the other way around, right? It, it go, goes against community interest. So that's one problem. And the other problem is that subnational spending or subnational lending, which is now a big thing uh, with the World Bank, and it's uh, it's starting to do that with Sindh, for instance, trying to isolate one of the provinces in Pakistan, um, is also carries similar concerns, which is that you bring in contractors that uh, also target local elites, industrial and, 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 and governmental. And so given that we are working within the backdrop that you rightly pointed out as, you know, colonized this, to this degree and neoliberal to this degree, um, that may may not necessarily be a very viable option. Given that that's the case, is there a mechanism you would propose that can be pushed and negotiated for in COP to allow for some kind of CSO representative mechanism that bypasses these typical uh, these typical uh, you know sort of obstacle you know issues, these roadblocked uh, sort of pathways? And one uh, uh, associated question. I wonder if you do you support the loss and damages techniques that are now being that have now been you know proposed and recent reports from the Oxfam for instance are also pointing towards those. Do you support them given that we've actually seen that finance is often the problem, which is that when you get money from somewhere, um, you never take away what you rightly described as the infrastructural background, you know, the structural conditions that give rise to the problems of vulnerabilities to begin with. Uh, just by way of an example. Um, most of the flood-related problems that Pakistan faces, a good proportion of them can be traced to the vulnerabilities that were exacerbated by the development projects that we commenced under the World Bank and other such uh, um, organizations, um, uh, as Vali would attest to, especially in Sindh. Um, and given that that's the background we're speaking of, the problem sometimes is not the money. Um, it's the continued, uh, you know, the continued uh, dependence on those networks of policy, on those networks of thought, on those networks of activity, on those networks of, you know, of, of knowledge that, that breed all of this in the long run. So given that that's uh, pretty, you know, I know it's a really complex kind of 
these uh, do you have a proposal or a, some you know some concrete thing that you've been thinking through for this particular path can i can i come in mariam yes go ahead wali and then i'll come in you you just respond because directly to you and then i'll come okay so so um i cannot really prescribe what the answer is it's a really you know essential uh, and difficult um you know thin balance between really not uh, cooperating with our own governments and at the same time uh, having influence it when, when civil society has very little space in these in these platforms but also um genuine civil society you know movements from the south have little space so you have also this you know uh, layer of international ngos that are also dominating the narrative of global civil society which is you know um also very dangerous to the priorities and our interests of our region so i i would say that your questions are quite you know strategic and they really need um uh, a, a kind of a, a seminar or another discussion precisely for this to try to see how we can advocate for better uh, um engagement of local communities let's say this and independent uh, civil society organizations in in cop given the structure of cop uh, which i personally uh, do not have a big you know knowledge of and i think um um i think i can i can uh, speak on from from our you know experience what and and to 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 support and second what you're saying zane is that what made our program you know the, a very big you know program we have for supporting agriculture in palestine what made it succeed was that it was independent and really based on local and regional and and individual individual support um uh, of supporters and members so uh, but at the same time uh, i i really do think that um um violators environmental violators do have the obligation to compensate for the damage that they have done globally so how to find this balance of not being you know co-opted and you know being you know driven out of our agenda is, is something that we need to discuss as civil society thank you thank you so much for mariam wali i think you wanted to add in on that and then i'll call on josiah after I think the most of the comment by Zen is very, uh, you know, uh, concrete and very appropriate in in most of the context, you know, not just Pakistani context. Uh, since I've I've been very active in UNEP uh, civil society pro uh, process and also in the HLPF process, so I know very well the dynamics of of these uh, forums. Uh, but I I tend to disagree with uh, Mariam, like uh, she 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 mentioned. I I know uh, how they have been uh, facing issues in CFS and 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 other platform. Uh, we have been struggling very hard to voice our uh, to raise our voice in in these official. Uh, engagement no in hlpf in sdg process in unep where we are in strategically we are there 
as a, I'm, I'm representing as a pharma major group focal point there. But really in designing of the programs, in, in uh, contextualizing of the event, we don't have any say. We have to fight even for three, five minutes of our speaking assignments, no? So, and there are different opinion within civil society. So real issues never come up, uh, uh, which is faced by the rural communities. But again, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll say that uh, without a strong mass mobilization, civil society uh, uh, activism, even inside the in, uh, official engagement and outside the uh, uh, all these kind of of uh, engagement, there there need to be a public pressure, a watchdog, which makes sure that anything is happening inside of COP negotiations or SDG negotiation or uh, food negotiations that uh, voices of the marginalized can be brought in. If not from the inside, a pressure from the outside, that's that's very important. Uh, because I've been for, for the past ten years, I've been in these uh, you know policy arenas, and I first sometimes I I feel frustrated why we I'm here. I just I I even cannot say what I want to say because there is a protocols of your statement. There are rules uh, you need. Uh, everyone consensus and all that. So, and uh, why don't we include a, a journal uh, recommendation that each, not just in climate finance, in each aid and finance uh, uh, agreements, there will be a local people presence there. Like Zen rightly mentioned, in Take you you can name any projects in Pakistan. It will be most of the aid or finance amount went to the consultant, the mechanism which they laid out, and the real amount uh, is is left very little, which is which is really used for development work. So unless or until we ourselves mobilize ourselves uh, uh, in a way where our voice. Uh, can be heard in a meaningful way, uh, a genuine, meaningful participation of civil society and grassroots communities is the only solution. Thank you. Thank you so much, Wally. And Josiah, I know that you wanted to add a little bit more um, on our discussion earlier. Um, um, there is a need, uh, similar to my other two colleagues, there is a need for an accountable and uh, transparent uh, climate finance mechanism in place. So the movement for global climate action is progressing, but we can only push it further if there are effective uh, accountability mechanisms. For us at the Pacific Island Association of NGO, um, this begets the, the work on the public finance management. Um, and for Piango, we are, uh, we've seen how the, the PFM and tracking the finance, especially on how it's being used, whether it's trickling down to the communities is something that we are currently doing uh, with uh, seven countries in the Pacific, with our members in seven countries in the Pacific. Eh? Um, 
on another note, um, um, I know that with um, climate finance, climate emergency, and promoting sustainable uh, development, there needs to be greater action on mitigation to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions, aligning to the 1.5 degree temperature goal to ensure survival of small island communities. This will only be real, realized by completely phasing out fossil fuels, including no new fossil fuel projects and ending subsidies and financing of fossil fuel and other carbon emitting uh, extractive uh, industries. If there's something about climate financing, it, it needs to, to finance the just uh, transition eh, of those that are working in um, extractive uh, industries. Um, in addition, uh, there's a need for climate finance to recognize um, and embed embedded um, and support uh, traditional knowledge. We have nature-based solutions that are being um, uh, supported in, um, in uh, our communities. These are some initiatives that um, that we would like to to see in a reimagined uh, climate finance. In terms of uh, loss and damage, um, I believe that there's a need for securing separate new and additional financing. Um, in the lead up um, for us from the Pacific um, Pacific CSOs, we have um, we are coming with our message about establishing a, a global civil society task force under the Warsaw International Mechanism for loss and damage or for non-economic loss and damage. Eh? And um, while we have a global uh, civil society task force, at the regional level, uh, we are already embedded where we have a civil society task force um, at the regional level. When it comes to loss and damage, uh, migration, migration, displacement, uh, relocation. Thank you. Thank you so much, Josiah, and thank you so much to all the participants who've been asking amazing questions, especially for Zane, who uh, I think you got you, you caught the attention of our speakers and and uh, mine as well. Thank you for listening to Aid Talks, co-hosted by Reality of Aid and Aid Watch. To get in touch, email us at aidtalks at gmail.com.